Welcome back to this season of VMP Anthology. I'm your host, Torre, and in this episode, we cover the first two albums in your VMP Anthology box set, Taken Off and Maiden Voyage. In this episode, we'll hear how Herbie lying about his draft status helped him get into the Blue Note studio, and stories of making Taken Off and Maiden Voyage, and in between, we'll hear from the legendary bassist Ron Carter, who played on Maiden Voyage, and the singer Corinne Bailey Ray, who shares her love of early Herbie here. Without further ado, here's Herbie. So yeah, so we want to talk about some of your favorite albums and like hear about what you were thinking about musically and, you know, if there's any stories you remember from the, you know, from the days that you were recording, you know, or why you, I mean, like, you know, your first album, Taken Off, you're 21, you know, it's one of the great debuts in the history of jazz. What were you trying to do on this record? Well, with Taken Off, um, first of all, it was uh, Donald Byrd's idea that it was time for me to record. Now, he was my boss, right? He's the one that actually discovered me and took me from Chicago, my hometown, to New York with his band. And um, anyway, uh, I had been living in New York at the time for about two years. And uh, anyway, this particular afternoon, Donald said, okay, it's time for you to make a record. And I said, no, it's not. I'm not ready yet. He said, yes, you are. Anyway, uh, he arranged for um, uh, Blue Note Records, which was a label that he was on, to give me a chance. And so they wanted to uh, know what the songs were going to be like that I wanted to record. And and actually, I had to give them an excuse. I had to t- tell them something, which here's what I told them. I said I was being drafted and I wanted to make a record before I went off to uh, to the service. <laughs> That's when they said, okay. <laughs> anyway, so um, Donald had told me before, um, before I even went down to see the people at Blue Note that um, um, he said, half the records for you and half the records for the record company. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, half the record is um, for your so- songs that you, you wrote uh, that you want to get out there. But, but people don't know your songs. They don't know you. They like, they like what's, what they're familiar with. Things like the blues or uh, like a, a cover of a, of a pop tune. And I said, okay. But then I had an idea. I said, wait a minute, to, to myself. I said, Horace Silver's been making records that, that sell so nicely. And I said, well, what makes his records sell? And I said, well, they're, they're funky things. I said, well, I'm from Chicago. If I can't write a funky tune, then I, I might as well give my citizenship back. <laughs> so uh, I said, because Chicago's a blues and funk <laughs> town, right? <laughs> so anyway, I, I wrote, a, wrote a song, uh, which is called Watermelon Man now, right? And anyway, so the next day I went down to play uh, this song for them. And uh, they said, of Great. They said, great. I, I played like three things for them. And I told them I was going to bring it three, three more things the next day. And they, 
They said, great. They said, of course, you'll have to put it into uh, Blue Note Records uh, publishing company. And Donald Byrd had, had warned me about that. He said, he told me they were going to insist that I put it in their company. And he said, don't do that. Don't do that. He said, I'm going to help you set up a, your own publishing company. It's a very easy thing to do. To hardly, it doesn't cost that much money. you know." Anyway, so... When they said, you have to put it in our company, I said, uh, no. <laughs> they said, why not? I said, uh, it's, I already published it. It's in my own company. They said, oh, you did. Then we can't record you. So I got up out of the chair. I started to walk out the door slowly. And just as I put my hand on the, on the doorknob, they said, Okay, come back, come back. You can still make the record. They can still be in your company. <laughs> That's how what I'm a man came to be in my company. Fortunately, when Mongo Santa Maria recorded it uh, that following year, after I gave it to him, because I worked with him for a weekend, replacing another pianist who, who was leaving. Uh, and the pianist, I find out, maybe 20 years later, was Chick Corea, who replaced me with Miles Davis's band. Oh, well. So there's a whole uh, tie-in to all of that. Musically, on, on taking off, what were you trying to do? Uh, I was just trying to make my first record. There was no particular um, general idea had for the, I had for the record. I wrote some tunes and I wanted to get it get it out there. Uh, I didn't know anything about strategy for making a record. Only what Donald Byrd told me. And that was it. But then, oh, one thing I did want to say is, fortunately, um, the uh, Alfred Lyon and, and Frank Wolf, who were the uh, owners of Blue Note Records and the founders of Blue Note Records, uh, they, they told me that, uh, Dexter Gordon was in town, and they thought they could get him uh, for my record. I said, fantastic, because Dexter Gordon, you know, the amazing tenor saxophonist, had been living in, in uh, Scandinavia for several years at that time, and I didn't even know that he was coming back to New York. And, and, and also, I was hoping I could record with Freddie Hubbard. And they were able to, to put that together. So that was ex extremely exciting for me. one day to make this record. And I'd gone out to Rudy before, so I was familiar with Rudy Van Gelder's studio. And, and Rudy and I had, had a, I had gone with Rudy on several Saturdays to find out how best to record the bass. And they were at the time developing little bass pickups and, and microphones and engineers were not being aware of the bottom part of the sound and all the waves and what it did and, and, and uh, picking a vinyl. 
that the more bass you have, the more grooves are shot because the bass is taking up half the grooves of the record, you know, and, and uh, it was always the last thing you could take consideration. That was changing. And Rudy and I wanted to find out, I wanted to find out how I could be a part of this changing process since I'm right now the only bass player in this band, in a band. So it was interesting to me to go out there with this kind of extra head start on getting the bass to sound good on a record, sound more present on the record. And the Herbie's record is one of those that I was able to begin to experiment with some of the Rudy Van Gelder experiments and see how did it work with a band of these kind of players playing this music is it's pretty, pretty complicated for the bass parts, you know. I'm not just playing one note all night. I've kind of moved to an instrument. I'm trying to find out what range best suits Herbie's voicings and the solos, you know. And since so it's a chance for me to put my scientific interest into the real world, like this date. And, and uh, I'm getting better at doing that, as a matter of fact. I'm getting better at understanding how the bass functions in the studio sonically. Uh, but I think that's one of the first records that I could say that the bass is starting to really sound like I hear in my head because of the, because of Herbie's writing, because of, I know where his sound is and uh, I understand where I can fit my notes into his sound and still have my note a part of his chord rather than just almost being there. Well, it was it, it's a 42 minute record album. Is it one, so you said it's one day, was it an eight hour session, six hour, like? You're gonna stay until it's done. Uh, uh, Frank and Frank, uh, Alfred Lyons and, and Frank Wolf, they would they would bring sandwich stuff preparations out at the studio. We would even we'd sit on the wall by the, by the cost of recording, and we would stop and take a break and eat lunch right in the room. You know, uh, there was not a big budget to say Monday to Friday, nine to twelve, and, and six to six to infinity. We had to get it done all that same day, and I'm sure that record was in that same time zone. So was it, was it six hours to record the whole album? We never took to get it done. We were there until dark. But one day. One day, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing that a record of such brilliance and complexity could be made in a single day. But you guys are all master musicians coming together. So you've been, you, you know, you've been thinking about music. I mean... It's, it, it blows me away that you can come up with well, well, To have the five day, let's, let's, let's figure out a concept for five days and make a record on the seventh day. We, we, most of those records at Luna were all one day because there wasn't the budget to, to, to have two days of recording or three days of recording. There was no limited overdub. We had to go ahead and bash it out until it got all done. Yeah, all those records at that time were all one day, man. So did you come into the studio already knowing the songs that you were going to do and the parts you were going to play, or has that worked out in the studio? It depended on the band. When I did the the, the, the Horace Silver record, we all knew what our parts were. Horace would go home in time we had the rehearsal. Horace would go in time to record at the rehearsal. He got back the second day. Corrections of the time length, the solo length was solos, and the studio day was all one, all one day. Uh, sometimes arrangements were simple enough that we could figure them out as we went along, or they would write the rhythm section parts and opened up the string parts from California later, whatever the promotional, the, the producing project was, and their, their facilities and what they had in mind. But by and large, most of those days were all done, reading at sight, but if any of us at all, none at all, and whatever we came up with, that was what we came up with. Are there any moments from that day that stand out 
in the memory any stories you can tell us from that day of making that that record other than hearing the results i realized how difficult that job was we took with different music we're all good players and, and all friends who understood the, the time frame with which we were dealing with 1965 and this is 2000 how many years has that gone 45 years help me out here uh more than 45 yeah, my, my point was that it's so far back, I don't have those specific memories. Sure. All I have is a record that tells me that these guys, who I happen to be one of, they, one of were on, had a very good day. And the, the result of this very good day has been led by a very great leader and a wonderful player who knew how to ask the guys to give him what he thought they need to give him to make his music successful. Yeah, he, he talk about Herbie a little bit as a, as a musical leader um in a moment like that you know in the studio context you know i mean you guys are all friends you guys are all masters you know it, it must be i just wonder what it's like in guiding people who are friends and masters and everybody thinks a lot of their own talent and like you know how, how do you how do you lead that group i think herbie understood understands because I, I don't know how he currently works but i'm sure it's the same he understands that the band is looking for some direction, whatever level of whatever level of efficiency is, however good they are, they're looking for someone to help them make the right choice for his specific intent of the music. Can you talk about Maiden Voyage and like just what you like about that? I think the thing that I love about Maiden Voyage is the the groundbreaking nature of the music. I feel like Herbie makes choices in terms of his harmony that that you just haven't heard before. It's it's like blasting off to space, but it's also like blasting back into a an, a, a future or a version of Africa which is very much uh, utopian and is in african-american consciousness at that time of like where where is our land where can we be free where can we be peaceful i think that that maiden voyage is almost a sort of edenic search and i think that 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 makes it a really beautiful record and really inspiring and really and a very sort of contemporary record as well So Maiden Voyage, 24 years old, you're still extremely young, and you made something that still is a towering achievement, and for many people, really encapsulates what jazz is. Tell me about the story of Maiden Voyage. Well, I had um, some other tunes I had written for this record. Um, you know, 
up-tempo things and and but there was a tune that I had actually written for a, for a TV commercial that uh, I thought if I put the the right background to it, the you know I had this chord structure, I, I had the bass line, and um, you know for for the TV commercial they watered everything down. They actually took the bass drum away from the drummer. They they he only had. Uh, I think he had maybe maybe the snare drum <laughs> and some brushes, and that was about it. But uh, uh, the drummer I wanted um, was one I had been recently working with um, um, with Miles Davis's band, and that was Tony Williams and and Ron Carter on 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 bass. And uh, again, Freddie Hubbard. Um, and anyway, um, I I wrote this song originally to try to find a um, a, a, a rhythm that would be not listen to this. I mean, I was originally wrote it for the TV commercial. <laughs> but I didn't, want, I, just, I didn't want to write just a regular backbeat. I wanted to make some kind of new kind of backbeat that just wasn't the regular mm, bop, mm, bop. I didn't want that. I wanted to make something different. What and TV I didn't... It was for Yardley's Men's Cologne. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, um... um I, I had gotten that assignment early enough to put something together, but I couldn't find that rhythm that I wanted. And uh, I had a gig coming up with Miles Davis in, in, in a tour in California. Uh, at the time, of course, I was living in New York. And on the plane going to LA, while I was talking to Wayne Shorter, all of a sudden, this rhythm hit me while I'm, I'm talking to Wayne, listening to Wayne, and and all of a sudden it, it occurred in my head. And 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 I, I I got the attention of the flight attendant, and I said, I need I need a napkin or something. So she gave me a. a Actually, a tissue paper or something, and and uh, or Kleenex. I don't know what she gave me, and I wrote the rhythm down. Somehow, um, within the next few days, I lost that piece of paper, and I didn't remember what the rhythm was. What was really strange was. At the time that we were in California, we also made a record in LA. It was the only time we we had recorded, you know, the Miles that Miles Davis's Miles Davis band outside of New York, uh, except for you know maybe live concerts. Anyway, uh, at the end of Ron Carter's song '81, as it's fading out, I happened to play 
the exact rhythm that I had written on the plane. And and I didn't even know I had played that until they played the playback of of the recording. And I said, wait, play the last part again. And I wrote it out again and, and I kept it. And and that's what saved that rhythm of, of Maiden Voyage. Wow. And back to New York, I, I finished it. Thanks to my wife, I, I I had gotten half the tune written and I couldn't figure out how to get back to the main uh, part of the tune. And she, it was late at night, she kicked me out of bed, said, you're finishing that tune now. <laughs> Two hours later, I, I, uh, I made a certain discovery for myself about structure that I had never even thought of before. And that became uh, the structure of Maiden Voyage, and which never goes back to the home key. It never settles on the what we call the tonic chord. Doesn't happen. So that was the story of, that was the story of, of Maiden Voyage. And I had no idea that it was going to be recorded by other people and and um, that it would become a favorite for, for many of my fans. I had no idea at that time that that, that would happen. And that's it for this episode of EMP Anthology, the story of Herbie Hancock. This season of the podcast is hosted by Toure. It's executive produced and scripted by Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Ben Patterson and Karen and Otis Ratchman. Thank you to Herbie Hancock and all the artists who checked in from their couches via Zoom for this podcast. And remember, listen to more Mwandishi.